following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hi, right, good morning. Good morning. And before we go too far, I want to remind you... Um, that uh, cold weather is on its way, so uh, we want to have a baptism before the river starts freezing over. Um, so what I um, what I would like to do is say that we are going to have a baptism two weeks from today, uh, right after service. Okay. So if it's uh, snowing or or we're feeling wimpy, guess what? We fill this tank in half hour is full. So. Um, we're going to do that, so if you are, are interested in, in uh, baptism, please talk to me within the next two weeks, um, and, uh, and we'll do that. And if we do go outside, there's a nice trail that's been cleared right down there, and a, although a big tree has fallen down um, near where we usually go in, you can, there's still plenty of places to stand. So, um, Okay. Well, uh, last week we looked at um, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and the qualifications and the work of good elders within the church. Uh, and this morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, and that's um, uh, page 998 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. And we're going to look at one of the reasons why it's so important to have good elders um, in a church family, and that reason is because there will always be false teachers who try to lead people astray from the truth and lead people after them. So I'd like to actually back up into verse 9 uh, so we can get a running start into our text, and then we'll pray. So Titus 1, verse 9. Uh, he, that is an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for Your Word this morning. Uh, We thank You for the opportunity to gather around Your Word 
uh, and listen hard for your spirit to speak. We trust that these are your words and your meaning is here right on the surface for us to see and understand. We pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit would guide us in the application of this truth um, so that we would mature in our faith and grow to be more like Christ. For us in his name we pray. Amen. One of the things that is so important when you study scripture is to remember the context. We've talked about this before. It's not just the context within the scripture itself, but also the cultural context of the original audience, um, the original recipients of the text. Um, and I, I know... Um, Perhaps you feel the way I used to feel that, how am I supposed to know anything about that? I live in uh, 2018, Carroll County, New Hampshire, uh, United States of America. I don't live in Crete. I have no idea what life was like then. Just Google it. That's my response. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of resources available to you. And if you are interested in, in studying more of these, I can point you in good directions. There's all kind of bad directions, which is kind of what we're here to talk about this morning. But there are lots of good places to find the resources as well. So if you are curious about those things and want to study more, I'll be happy to, to help you. Well, we've already backed up to verse 9 of chapter 1 uh, to remind us of the context uh, within the Scripture that Paul was addressing uh, Titus and what kind of men ought to be put in place of uh, as elders uh, who are stewards of God's household. That's what we talked about last week. But we also have to remember the cultural context that Titus was in back in first century Crete. Um, I'm going to be very careful not to draw too many parallels um, to 21st century Ossipi, but um, you may start to sense them as we go along. Uh, the people in Crete were not known to be particularly high class. Um, these are not highly educated or refined people. In fact, to be, uh, to be called a Cretan, if somebody calls you a Cretan, it was an insult. You're calling them a liar. Um, it, uh, just like being called a Corinthian meant that you were a dissolute party animal. Um, so being called a Cretan, not a good thing. Um, I remember Fred Flintstone used to use the term a lot, call people Cretans. So uh, that's just me. Um, and I'm the only one. So that's all right. So uh, now to understand that people of Crete, not high class, not high educated, not refined people, um, this is, uh, it's in this context of this kind of rough and rowdy crowd uh, that Titus was a, um, was to appoint elders who are ready for battle against a particular type of false teachers. Now, we can't forget that Paul was, uh, he had been on the island of Crete. He was there with Titus and left Titus behind. Um, Paul had met the people there. Paul had planted the churches on the island there. So he wasn't unfamiliar with the character of people. So he's not just 
throwing rocks over a wall. He knew these people, um, and he knew their character. Um, Paul knew who he was writing to and who he was writing about when it came to this particular group of false teachers. This is not just like uh, me write a letter to encourage a friend who lives in Baltimore, uh, and, um, and I know everything about the, what people are like in Baltimore. Through this, I don't. I know they cheer for the Ravens, and that's not a good testimony for them. But other than that, I don't know anything. But Paul did know these people. He knew the character of the island and what the people were like. And he knew some of the individuals as well. And he knew who he was writing about when it came to this group of false teachers. They were not unfamiliar to him. So let's, uh, let's look at what he said about these guys and maybe... Um, if we can get an idea of what this meant to Titus and a church then, we can get an idea of what it might, uh, what it means to us uh, in a church now. So look at verse 10. See what Paul says about these false teachers. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement of these men. Uh, this group of false teachers was, first of all, insubordinate. They refused to submit to apostolic authority. They wouldn't listen to Paul. And when it came to doctrine and practical godliness, they rebelled against the order that God had given uh, for the church and were disobedient to the sound teaching that he had handed down through the apostles. Uh, and to think about today, this is an easy way to sniff out false teachers within the church. And while the apostles are all dead, we still have the divinely inspired words that they wrote in a scripture. We have the way of Christ and the apostles written down for us. It's all right here in the Bible. And seeing how any teacher treats the scriptures is an easy measuring stick to whether or not they are a faithful teacher or a false teacher. How do they view the Bible? Do they quote it? Do they misquote it? Do they read it? Do they give chapter and verse so you can look it up yourself? Do they use verses in their context or not? Do they try to stretch the meaning beyond the author's original intent? Or do they treat the Bible as worthless historical document? Those are important questions to ask. Um, in this case, on the island of Crete, these teachers were empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These teachers uh, would focus on foolish questions, matters of no consequence, uh, useless subtleties and precepts of human origin. Uh, they're not talking about anything that's actually beneficial. They use a mixture of corrupt Judaism and corrupt Christianity to follow, uh, to force people to follow empty rituals and traditions and try to make themselves acceptable to God in this way, which, uh, that's in essence slavery. That does not result in salvation, but rather it results in eternal destruction. 
This is exactly why we don't speak real highly of religion here in the Crusher Road Church family. Religion is man's attempt to reach to God, to save himself, to make himself acceptable to God, and to get into heaven. But we know, because Scripture tells us so, that that is not possible. We can't work our way into God's eternal kingdom. That's what religion tried to do. I know people are outside of the church uh, that don't understand what we talk about here might call us religious people, uh, and that's okay because it means something different. We understand that religion is man-made systems, but simple faith in Christ is the only way to be accepted by God. Anyone who claims that salvation is possible by any other means than by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is wrong, and they fall into the category of a false teacher. So what was Titus to do with these false teachers? Ah, just, you know, avoid conflict. Titus, just let them go. They'll, it'll, it'll, it'll burn out. Just forget it. Well, that would probably be a little bit easier for Titus to deal with. Who likes confrontation? Everybody like conflict here? Everybody, I love correcting people when they're wrong. It's great fun. No, it's not. So what was Titus to do? Not ignore the problem. It says in verse 11, they must be silenced. I tried to say that all word. They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They must be silenced. Greek word there literally means they need to be muzzled. I like that. Strap their mouth shut. But how do you muzzle a false teacher? Please, please, don't teach that way anymore. But if you want to, I guess, it's all right. That's not, that's not how it's done. You know who did this better than anybody else? You may have heard of him before. Uh, his name is Jesus. Um, Jesus, you've heard of him, I hope. He silenced the Pharisees and the Sadducees with a simple truth. This is the way to silence, to muzzle false teachers. It's with the truth. Listen to one account of Jesus talking to uh, to these people in Luke eleven thirty nine through forty one. Uh, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, this is not just, hey, Jesus, come in and have a burger. Uh, here's the sink, wash your hands. You know, you've been out in the dirt. They want him to be ritually clean before sat down at their table. So there was a religious ritual they had to go through. It had nothing to do with getting dirt off his hand. 
but it had to do with religious cleansing. Jesus said, what are you even doing? You wash the outside, but you don't wash the inside. You you have all this sin inside of you, and you're worried about ritual cleaning on the outside. It's worthless. Give what's on the inside, and all that's on the outside will be clean as well. This is a, this is a process, a teaching thought up by men. You won't find it in the Old Testament. You can't read through the law and say, oh, here's the one on washing your hands before dinner. It's not in there. You will find it in the Pharisaical text, in the, outside of the canon of Scripture. Jesus silenced the falsehood with the truth that what is within a person is what is important and not the outside. It's the purity of the heart through faith in Jesus Christ that he is concerned with, not the empty religious rituals of washing of hands. Up until about a fourth century, under the Roman Emperor Constantine, the church did not have places like this to meet. They didn't have buildings set aside for worship. They met in homes. They go over to somebody's house to worship together, to pray together, that sort of thing. And as a result, the false teachers on the island of Crete were able to go and upset entire households um, with their garbage that they taught for shameful gain. They go to somebody's house and start spewing this falsehood, making these other rules up for people. Paul wrote about people like this in 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 5. This may sound familiar to you. Speaking of these false teachers, says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that God imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's the worst part about this. This is what really bothers me. These people were not just uh, teaching uh, false teaching. They're enslaving people to religious practices, and they're doing it to get the people's money. That's really heartbreaking to me. In Lang's commentary on the Holy Scriptures, It says, selfishness was the spring of the pretended zeal of these false teachers. And the disgracefulness of the gain they acquired consisted mainly of this, that it was obtained by the most contemptible means, meaning the seeking to please men and flatter their prejudices. There were certain topics, such as perpetual obligation to the Mosaic ritual, the preeminence of those descended from Abraham, and the importance of preserving the Jewish genealogies, which would be sure to make a preacher popular with many and render them willing to contribute to his support. We'll read more about this uh, in, I believe, Second Timothy. Paul talks about people gathering uh, teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, do you know how much more popular I would be if I did that? You know how much more full this place might be if we just pick something that everybody already thinks and just keep hammering on that, even if it's wrong? It's pervasive in the church today to just pick people's prejudices 
and preach on that and teach on that and emphasize that so that everybody that is already sour about that will gather together and will rally together and think we're accomplishing something great for God's kingdom when we're not. We're just gathering up a heap of garbage. And it's not right. Now these uh, people that were doing this, the prejudices and the preferences that they were poking at were Jewish ones. They said, hey, if you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, you're better off than the guy who can't, right? Uh, all this sort of thing. And this is not unfamiliar to our time. It may not have the same Jewish bent that it once has, uh, certainly not in our area, but there are still false teachers out there that take advantage of the fears and the prejudices of people to line their own pockets and lead people away from the faith. And it's bad, in case you're wondering. Not helpful at all. Verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. There's a ringing endorsement of the people of Crete. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Again, verse 12 gives us the idea of the type of people that Titus was having to deal with and work with. And Paul's strategy for dealing with them and also his goal for them is right here in these words. What's interesting is Paul quotes a poet, Epimenides. Look him up. He was considered a prophet by the people of Crete. Uh, and he lived about 600 years before Christ. And it confirms the truth of his statement, Paul does, that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow. I don't think there's a 600-year-old poem about us being quite that same way. Um, Oh, never mind. Like I said before, to be called a Cretan was to be called a liar. And it said that Epimenides uh, sarcastically said that Crete had no wild beasts because they had the people instead. <laughs> Paul also wrote about people like this in Philippians 3, 9, when he says their God is their belly. Uh, lazy gluttons, there this uh, written lazy gluttons is actually translated slow bellies, which is an expression that doesn't make any sense. But it's, uh, it's to say that it's as if the people, all they are is a stomach, just trying to feed itself. That's all they were interested in, laying around and being fed, but not being fed good things. So how did Paul suggest that Titus deal with people like this? With what kind of attitude was he to deal with them? I find this fascinating, really. Uh, mostly because this is um, uh, my life's work as well. But Titus was given this job on purpose. It wasn't given to Timothy. It wasn't given to Silas or to Barnabas. 
the gentleness of Timothy would not have cut it in this context. Paul tells Titus to rebuke them sharply. He didn't quote the proverb to humiliate the people, but to save them. To remind Titus of what kind of people that he's dealing with. Now, I know some of you have traveled. This is, uh, you, you have left, um, Carroll County, which I'm, I'm proud of you for that. Um, I know some people who haven't, so, uh, good for you. And I'm sure that in your traveling, you've seen that ministry is different in different contexts. What goes over well here might not go over so good in Manhattan or in Memphis or Portsmouth, way down south. Paul was reminding Titus where he was, who he was dealing with, and how to deal with them. And they needed to be dealt with sharply. Titus had to act like a surgeon, cutting out diseased flesh and bringing restoration through painful operation, not to punish or to shame them, but to make them sound in the faith. That's the goal, to make them sound in the faith, to turn them away from devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Titus was the man for this job. So I don't see the instructions, hey, Titus, don't forget, you know, take it easy on your, on your stomach, like Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, I think maybe where Timothy was, it might have been a little bit easier to deal with. And Titus, I don't know, I kind of see him like a logger, you know, and he's got to be a little bit tough with the people. He's got to be a little bit sharp, a little more direct with the people there. Hmm. Lots of pastors like to uh, identify with Timothy because he gets such nice instruction and gentleness and stuff. And Titus a little bit more. <laughs> Suck it up and deal, dude. That's, uh, that's why I like that. <laughs> What's the goal here? To deal with these people sharply. It's not just to make sure they know they're a bunch of jerks. That's not it at all. Restoration was the goal. Not excommunication. I say, you're bad, get out. That was not the goal. But it was to make them sound in the faith. To restore them to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the goal is the same for the church today, regardless of its context. To remain free from the disease of mixing our faith with human fooleries. The false teachers held that moral perfection and purity was based on ritual observances and prescriptions that that anyone who didn't follow their rules was unclean and unacceptable. And to that, Paul responded. He said, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I see a resume for you. Sound like a bunch of nice people here. So I want to address these things. First of all, to the pure. 
It's important to remember that no one is pure based on their own effort. We are only cleansed from our impurity by faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. Following religious rules made up by people to avoid certain food or certain drink or certain behavior does not bring us any closer to moral perfection or to purity. And God has made nothing impure. He didn't make any food or drink impure. As Jesus said in Mark seven fourteen through 23, He says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These are the fruits of the defiled and unbelieving, that list. To those who are polluted by sin and reject the gospel, even that which is pure in and of itself becomes defiled by their perverseness. Their minds and their consciences, the whole direction of their inner life and their ability to do right and avoid wrong are defiled, making nothing in their lives able to remain pure and unsoiled because sinfulness touches every aspect of life. Calvin wrote, He shows the fountain from which flows all the filth which is spread over the whole life of man. For unless the heart be well purified, although men consider works to have great splendor and sweet smell, yet with God they will excite disgust by their abominable smell and by their filthiness. Friends, there are few things in this life that I hate more than this truth. Don't we want to think that people are basically good and they're all just trying to be nice for the most part? I always think this morning I have some acquaintances that will try to do something nice for the community, but they've utterly rejected the gospel. They're not beyond saving, but they've turned from a Christ and still trying to do good things for their friends and family and community. And I thought, it's good. They're doing good things. That's nice. But the truth is, apart from faith in Christ, all their good works are worthless. I can't help but think about this weird picture of a fountain of filthiness bubbling up. Men consider their works to have great splendor and sweet smell. That's what I thought. But the truth of the matter is, with God, they excite disgust by their abominable smell and filthiness. That breaks my heart for my friends. I 
I hate that this is true, but God will not judge mankind by the standards of mankind. He will judge based on whether or not people trust in Christ for their forgiveness and salvation. That's it. These false teachers, as it says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These teachers were opposed to the gospel of grace. Their works don't stand the test. Their words are empty and their deeds are detestable. This describes any person that claims that salvation is possible, that pleasing God is possible, that getting into God's eternal kingdom to go to heaven when you die is possible in any other means by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So let's make sure we're not like that. There are groups meeting all over the world right now or whenever morning happens to be in their time zone that are just telling people to be nice and you'll be okay because we're all God's children. And that is false. That's teaching that is pervasive in our day. And it is wrong. You can't get to heaven just by being born. That's not how it works. You can only get to heaven by being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. I don't mean to yell at you. It's not your fault. I will say, if anyone here has not received God's free gift of salvation, because it is free, you can receive it by simply turning from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Except that his death on the cross was to pay the penalty for your sin. And he will give you forgiveness. He will fill you with his spirit and to give you eternal life in his kingdom. And you get to walk with him and to be a friend of God for eternity. Why would you want to add any more to that? That's all there is to it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Blessed pray. Mm. Father, I pray that first of all, you would protect your people from false teaching. I pray, Lord, if there's anything here I've said this morning that's incorrect that you pointed out, that we measure it by your word. And every time we get together to talk about you and about your word and about life, I pray that it would be based on the truth which is found only in his scripture. Lord, don't let your people be deceived. And I pray that the people don't know you yet that have not put their faith in Jesus Christ would not be deceived anymore either. I pray that the gospel would uh, ring out from the pulpits across the world this morning. Not falsehood that people are basically good or good enough, but that you are good and you died in our place because we are not Father, again, I ask if anyone here is not trusted in you for forgiveness and salvation, that they simply ask you to forgive them on the cross for their, for their sin in their place.
and they'd trust you with their entire life and eternity. I thank you, Lord, for calling so many out of darkness into this wonderful light, into your marvelous light. I pray that work would continue through your people, not just from a pulpit, but at the job site and in the office and in the class and in the grocery store, wherever. God, we love you. We thank you for your love for us and we thank you for the truth of your word. May we stick to it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.